what makes me feel like a big man is when I when I when I'm on the floors and I just pull out this little computer from my white coat and I just start like just pounding out a note, copying pasting the hell out of like a, a really, really rudimentary progress note, and then I just snap it snap it, like my my notebook down, put it in my white coat and just walk away. Welcome to Go Live, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Clinical Informatics Fellows, where we discuss the intersection between healthcare and technology and bring you entertaining interviews from experts in the field. Today, we're featuring an interview with Michael Wang, a first-year clinical informatics fellow at UCSF, about his recent JAMA article. We'll be talking copy-paste in the electronic health record and giving some reflections on the past year of our fellowships. Today, I have an awesome panel of fellows joining me again. He's been gone for a while, but he's back. Chansey Christensen, a pathology-trained first-year fellow at Geisinger. What, what have you been up to, Chansey? Uh, well, my wife just had a baby, so I've been not sleeping for the last uh, 16 days straight. So that's been very exciting. It's been very uh, tiresome. Uh, I've been up at 3 in the morning working on my manifesto when the world is asleep, so it's been very good. Is your manifesto called... When the world is asleep, or is <laughs> that's good because I didn't have a title for it. You know, the most important thing for a manifesto is your title. Being awake at three in the morning when no, when everyone else is asleep is a, is a very strange time. So, do you play like Hearthstone then? No, I mean I just walk around and then I like stare at the baby and then I just keep shuffling back and forth like a zombie. So. Um, we were on shifts for a while. My wife, uh, she was worried about SIDS, and so every two hours, one of us had to be awake. Did you uh, did you get one of those um, boxes, the, those like uh, cardboard box beds that they say are just as good for SIDS as anything else? <laughs> we actually got this really cool thing. They're called co-sleepers, and it's a really bad name, but basically it's like a crib without legs, and so it's metal, and you can put it in your bed. And so the you, like you and the baby can just sleep next to each other, and so you can't roll over on the baby. So it's been really helpful. So you heard him there as well. Um, ben Orwell is uh, he's ending his first year of fellowship at OHSU. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, today, Ben. What are you up to? Well, um, I have recently sent out a fellowship-wide survey um, to all of the fellows that I know of um, who are in clinical informatics fellowships in the US and I'm currently collecting some results and we'll hopefully have more to feed back to you guys later on but um but it's a two part survey so it's an initial online sort of um demographics and and light info and then follow up a little bit more qualitative telephone um component to it so we're hoping to get some detailed results Awesome. And lastly, we have Mark Zhang. He um, is finishing his fellowship uh, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and uh, you're becoming... Well, tell us, what's going on with you, Mark? Um, well, so first thing, uh, Ben, I'm I just going to say that I, I did the uh, survey, so you're welcome, and I look forward to uh, seeing uh, the results. Um, it but, checks in know, the mail on that, Mark. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, so moving forward, I'm going to be a associate program director for the Clinical Informatics Fellowship at, at Brigham and Women's and Partners, and also the medical director for digital health implementation at the Brigham. And I'll still be doing palliative care for a little bit of my time. And then I have 
some time uh, dedicated to my startup. Wow. Does that mean that you have a secretary now? I do not have a secretary, but I do. I do have a dual monitor setup, which I, I know as a, I don't chase, you already have one as a fellow, <laughs> but this is like a, <laughs> this is. Oh yeah. Those up. dual monitors are great. Like once you go two, and then you're like, I, I can never use one again. And you can always you rearrange them and it, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, clearly so, three monitors is the new two monitor setup. I know. <laughs> have you guys I seen know. the HoloLens where you can have an infinite number of of screens? I think that's the coolest one. Or other augmented reality. Have you guys actually like used HoloLens as like a? I've seen uh, it a lot. I've been trying to get our department to buy a couple because I'm like, we can use it for education and let the fellows try it out for educational purposes. I, I played around with a HoloLens like uh, sometime. I think like. I don't know, like six or seven months ago, and it was kind of cool. But like, if you have glasses on, it it can really affect the AR. Um, and it like, uh, but it was really cool. They were doing a demo where they were like showing like a uh, like a uh, uh, like it was like an anatomy demo, and you could like walk around yeah. like a shoulder and like point at things. Except for in my case, because I have like terrible vision, and I need my glasses. I saw like. An occasional glimmer of a shoulder, uh, like in my periphery as I walked around, but you know, it seemed cool. So you need prescription Hololens. That's what we. That's what they need I, to invent next. <laughs> so, or maybe I was just wearing it wrong. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, guys, uh, for another episode of Go Live, and and you know, thanks for listening. If you're you know out there listening. Um, so I wanted to start out with, you know, we're ending our first year of fellowship and, you know, we've perhaps learned a lot and, you know, at least had, you know, had a lot of experience as well. Maybe we could reflect on, you know, what we've learned or, or maybe give some, you know, tips to some advice, I guess, to the incoming fellows, some unsolicited advice to the, to the incoming fellows. Um, do you guys have anything like that, Mark, as being the wisest and, you know, oldest uh of of our of our group um, today. i think like what i would say is, as the oldest <laughs> um i think what i would say is take advantage of these two years um and, and know that um you know it, it does fly by and um you know what you do during these two years can really set you up for the next step and i think if you're always thinking about how your projects are going to reflect what you're interested in doing um, when you're done with fellowship, I think then you have a pathway and a trajectory to, um, to, to really getting the most out of fellowship. So if, if you want to be a researcher and you want to, you know, go deep in academics, um, you know, do like what Ben's doing and, 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 and do, do some, you know, get the foundations for good research and in, into an area that you want to really pursue. Um, if you're interested in, Kind of administration or or pursuing like a CMIO to CIO route, um, you know, start early and move forward. Um, if you you're interested in innovation and things like that, um, uh, you know, work work in that in that field. I I remember listening to, um, uh, you know, I I think that like. You have these two years. What you can really create is is really um, a interactive portfolio of work that you can then leverage to 
to, you know, for, for certain job, for whatever jobs you're looking for, because right now, like, it's still pretty unclear uh, what many of the trajectories from us, from the CI fellowships uh, will actually, regarding jobs, what, what they'll bring. And, um, and I think we have this opportunity to really define it um, moving forward um, at at a larger scale, but also at an individual scale. So. I think that's some great advice, Mark. And uh, Chancy, do you have any any advice? Um, you know, reflecting back on this year. Yeah, I have two, but they sort of are contradictory. So the first one is, I think it's really important to try a bunch of new things, and I think you should get as much exposure because informatics is a really broad field, and so there's so much cool stuff. And it's really, I mean, I just wrote up my CV because I've just started pulling together stuff for the job search, and I'm like, wow, I've had exposure to six. EHRs. I've helped Im- with implementation or upgrades on like four different things. I like know Scanson and Slicer Dicer and R and Tableau and Informatica and Click. So like I've been exposed to a lot. And then to go along with that, I also would say it's really important to learn how to say no because I think it's really great and there's so much exciting stuff to do. And you know certainly where we work, they're like, oh man, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that the informatics people are here. Here's a great project. And you're like, yeah, that is a really cool project. And then that, and then like. At the end of the night, you're like, I have 35 projects that are due in the next two weeks. That's okay. So I think it's it's good. And like Mark says, you, you do the things that help you're interested in. And I think it's good to try new things. And then you also have to learn how to sort of uh, push them back at some point. You know, I wonder, my sense is that like two large projects at, at one, any given time is like a good number. Like Like when it comes to like how productive you can be and also how like what the quality of the output and, you know, you could have like some smaller like projects as well, but I think that's like a good, like good number. And I would love to see, hear what you guys think about that. I think it's a good number is okay. It's just, uh, we all know informatics projects never end. And so you're like, I'm doing two this month and then they may be in a lull and you're like, Oh, I can pick up two more. And then in the third month, you're like, Oh, all four of them are reactivated again so it's it's hard and yeah i agree that the overload is very real you can very quickly get filled up and then you're no longer like oh i'm doing a work for two projects i'm doing like d minus work on 10 projects right i agree and and even you know attending meetings for you know multiple projects you know can get difficult you know they'll run into each other and then you then you just feel too stretched you feel like you're not you know contributing to the you know to that to that group um, and being you know valuable to them. Well, I, I guess for me, this has been just adding to what you guys have been saying. I agree that limiting the number of large projects that you're involved with is a good idea, and certainly that it's easy to get overwhelmed with these multiple long-term projects that you're that people want to be involved with. And I've certainly felt that way. Um, and what I have realized recently is that I don't think it's wrong to keep your fingers in a variety of different projects, but also that I have kind of stopped feeling guilty when I can't make it to things or <laughs> when I don't have the ability to be as involved in each one of these projects as I want to be, because in reality, I'm not the owner of very many of these big things. You know, I'm not, I don't actually have responsibility for them. And so I do have responsibility maybe for some small component, 
and or maybe I have a little pet project on the side that is my own project that I actually am going to have to be the only one who drives it and the only one behind um, making that project come to fruition. But for the vast majority of these things, there's actually someone who is getting paid for that and is getting time sort of out of their schedule and out of their FTE, for lack of a better term, um, to kind of make that project happen. I'm free labor for them. It's an educational experience for me. And so I've stopped feeling guilty if like I can't make it to a meeting or if I have not been participating in a certain aspect of something. And I think you can that's just put the Ben stamp would... on it. Exactly. You know, if <laughs> if I if I got up to play a part, then I probably learned something about how the whole system works. Um, and so I think just try to take whatever value you can out of your experiences and don't feel like you're letting people down um, if you're not sort of taking something to completion that wasn't yours to begin with. That's a really good point, Ben. And I wonder maybe yeah. the other way to think about this is, is it is it like the amount of projects or just understanding like the expectations to begin with um, for what your involvement will be uh, and just being clear about that. And maybe that's just like a more nuanced version of no or maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those are both really valid points. Because there's certainly projects where I'm like, I personally didn't install Epic, but I can definitely claim like, oh, I helped with it. But. And I think um, maybe my my pro tip is is persistence. Uh, you know, it, it changes is harder at at bigger institutions. And I think like if we you know as fellows, sometimes we want to implement you know something that is is different than you know than uh, than the way things have been done. And I think uh, you know kind of presenting your idea and maybe representing it in a different way, like I guess iterating on your um, a prior idea. Um, you know, isn't just something for the startup world. It's also can be something for you know the big the big health system as well. Um, and 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 so just like persistence and and learning from you know the wise people that you're working with, um, in that I think has been pretty beneficial. Guys, I was wondering what you guys thought about like um. I mean, I had to learn R, and I was very scared about that when I first started as a fellow. Should fellows be scared about that? Uh, you know, is that something that they should learn? I think R is 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 a pretty like helpful, useful thing to at least have an understanding of because, it, you know, even if we're not programming, ultimately most of us are probably going to publish something at some point, or at least ha like you know be in a situation where it might be helpful to, and just using R for the the um, you know data visualization capabilities. Um, actually, here quick poll out of the four four of us, how many um, actually knew anything about R uh, coming into fellowship? I didn't. Not me. I we learned either. Python. I did we not. Learn R. I mean, there's okay. R specifically was Python. My, my experience was essentially with using another statistical package that is not quite as programming-like as R. I was using Stata and, and then some SQL program or SQL scripting. But, but I haven't done... Um, I, I'm currently learning R, and I can actually, I'll put in a plug right now for um, what what's called R Boot Camp. Um, it's a, uh, a self-paced course through OHSU, or actually it's not technically through OHSU, but one of the OHSU faculty uh, makes it available for free. His name is Ted Ladaris, 
Um, if you search for our bootcamp Laderis or our bootcamp OHSU on um, Google, I'm sure you'll come across it. It's 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 good. I'm I'm doing it right now. Yeah, and I, and I was like initially very intimidated by R and you know and and programming in general. Um, but I, you know, I'm glad. I think it was like really something that was beneficial to learn. You know, and 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 like Mark said, like even for publishing or you know for making graphs that are you know kind of more customized. Uh, you know, I think it's something or manipulating data to know like what you can do with data and and how you get data from one form to become a predictor for something else or whatever it is. It's it's something that can be learned and it's it's something that you just have to you know keep practicing with. You know, use uh, you know you can do the online courses, but I think doing like a a something that needs to be created or like if if the course has like a project, then that's something that you really learn a lot from. Do you think yeah, that R is better than SQL in your training, Ben? To me, it's important to have some experience with statistics. I think it's important to have some experience with databases and data structures. And I think it's also probably important to have some kind of experience with quote unquote kind of programming in the sense of sort of developing the idea of functions and the idea of sort of iterating through um, uh, requirements or um, or uh, using like arrays and how computers work and memory and things like that. So to me, there's it's not that one is necessarily more important than another, but I think so much of we, what we do is based on these things that. Sure, we're not all going to be experts in it, but to me, I think that you need to have some basic understanding of all of these things in order to be an effective leader of people who are more expert in any one or another of them. I definitely agree. And I remember like when I was out on the interview trail uh, two years ago or whatever for uh, the fellowships that one of the people I interviewed with um, in Arizona at the VA, he explained like clinical informatics as being like C3PO or R2D2, like the or I guess C3PO, like the translator, you know, of the field. That's why, I mean, I found that the the Python training we've had, it's better to have the theoretical understanding of it. So then you can talk about like, what the heck is a K-nearest neighbor? What is clustering? What is bootstrapping? To me, I found it more useful than the actual programming itself. That was great. And I think that's like, you know, welcome to the new fellows. You know, hopefully, you know, you'll enjoy the fellowship as much as we all have. Um, but I also want to do... You know, we're going to talk to Michael Wang tonight. He's actually one of the um, first-year fellows at UCSF, um, and he wrote uh, something in, that was published in JAMA um, in May of this year about copy-paste. Um, he kind of talked about how what percentage of notes were copied and pasted, and and uh, commented on how you know the future of EHRs may need to be altered, uh, you know, because of uh, the amount of copy and paste that we do. Um, I didn't know if if you guys would mind kind of just introducing the concept of copy and paste and like how, why it might be an issue before we get Michael Wang in here. You know, I don't know, uh, Ben, what your experience is with, with, you know, I'm sure you have never used the control C button, but, uh, what, well, these your... days you don't have to use the control C button because at least for my EHR, there's just a button that allows me to copy the entirety of an, of another note into my own, note and just sign it right from there if I wanted to. 
Um, you never so, have to, you don't even have to look at the patient. You can just copy, even on their yearly checkup, just copy, you know, patient's still alive, just roll it that's through. That's exactly right. <laughs> this is a big button that you just click that says patient's still alive, and then you bill. <laughs> I think that um, one of the big things that is different of, between electronic documentation and paper documentation is that it's just so much easier to include large amounts of text that you would have otherwise had to write by hand that you no longer have to. And so anything from copying in a big block of labs out of your um, EHR's laboratory module to copying the HPI from the H&P to sort of a brief history section of your progress note that you write every day to copying forward your assessment and plan each day from your from yesterday's progress note to today's progress note and then making modifications to it i think people have found that um in some ways there's probably some element of consistency that's maintained there because you know everyone is is looking at the same story everyone is um using the same language or at least i do throughout the week maybe if i'm copying my own progress note forward to some extent, that that might be a good thing. I think where people think that copying and pasting content from old notes to new notes is probably a bad thing is where information gets moved forward that may or may not be accurate, may or may not be relevant anymore. Um, and therefore, you get both incorrect items in notes that get propagated sometimes for days and weeks at a time. And you also get so-called note bloat, where essentially notes get longer and longer and longer without actually providing additional value. Um, and so I think that's a couple of the big reasons that people are against this whole copy paste thing. I agree. And, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of this revolves around billing as well. Um, but before we go any further, I think we have, uh, Michael Wang on the Skype. Mike, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfect. So Mike is a first-year fellow at UCSF, and he's an internal medicine-trained uh, uh, physician. He has an article in the JAMA Internal Medicine uh, Journal from May 30th called Characterizing the Source of Text in Electronic Health Record Progress Notes. Mike, thanks for joining us today, and, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your article? Um, so basically, the, 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 the motivation for the article is I've for a long time been interesting interested in in looking at how much we copy and paste um in in charts because uh at least at UCSF we started to use this term uh, documentation validity um which effectively is our term for how much do i believe the text the the truth and the um the the up to datedness of the text that i'm reading um and so we basically um that interest coincided then with epic releasing a, a new tool in their 2015 update, which allows you to track exactly where uh, a, a specific character comes from in, in progress notes. Uh, so that, was, that really made it pretty easy for us to look at the different distributions uh, in, 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 pro, in patient progress notes, which is all we looked at. Uh, so we basically found that 40% of notes were copied and really only 18% uh, only, uh, of notes uh, were, were manually entered, which was pretty striking. 
and you saw some variability as well in in like trainee versus medical student versus attending writing the notes, right? Uh, so basically, to to some extent, to what we expected, the the residents who probably from my own anecdotal experience, I think feel the busiest, uh, tended to have the highest copied proportion uh, and the uh, and the yeah the highest copy proportion. And uh, did you look at the quality of, of what was going on as well? Like, was there mistakes or anything like that? Yeah, so we really couldn't assess that. We, and we didn't look at that uh, comprehensively throughout the, uh, throughout the notes that we looked at. Uh, but we did. But we, we, we have seen some evidence of that anecdotally. There's that uh, JAMA paper by Singh uh, who looked at ambulatory uh, medical error. And in the seven, I forget if it was seven or it was like seven or 7.4 percent of notes uh, that contained that contained copy text on that encounter. Uh, that about one third of those uh, encounters, uh, a third of the errors uh, for those encounters were attributed to the copied text. And so this is wow. re- really interesting stuff, and it's something we you know, kind of probably all already felt, but the the very low percentage of original content is is striking. Yeah, shocking. Do you know why Epic like? put in this character um, provenance uh, feature? Like, what is, what's the underlying reason that they added that? I, I haven't actually talked to Epic about their specific reasoning. Uh, I know that, so Amdis, the, uh, Amdis, the, the medical director's uh, organization, had published, and I think a few other organizations had published gui- uh, suggestions, um, basically arguing that it's, it's going to be, moving forward, it'd be really important to, to be able to tell uh, what text was was copied and what text was manually entered. And to some extent, and I, I think Epic probably was following those suggestions. Um, and it's been, it has been useful to build that feature in because to some extent, you know, I've always, <clears throat> excuse me, I've always said that the, really the problem with the very heavily copied notes is it's very hard to, to extract the, the, the clinical note from the, the other functions of the note, right? Like the billing function, the, the, the legal functions, the, um, the the sort of clinical history function that that is all put together in the in the note right the note is the only place that fulfills all of the three of those things for the most part um, but really just being able to see which which what text is manually entered allows me to more or less figure out okay that manually entered text is the clinical note <laughs> effectively and then this other stuff is probably for those other functions so do you think that's the ultimate end goal is that essentially um, it's going to be a way to be able to scan notes like quicker because they'll be, you know, in a different color or, or, you know, highlighted in some way so you can actually read it better? Um, I mean, I don't know if that's the end goal. I mean, I, th- I think in institutions that have that implemented, it's certainly very helpful. Um, I, I can see it still being a problem, though, like, especially in the context of interoperability, because just because my institution has this feature, like, uh, like it implemented doesn't mean that any other institution that I give the note to will have the same uh, the same data like they won't be able to also show their providers what's manually entered or not and so really I think unless that is implemented across the board um, it's not going to be a long-term solution I mean to me really it would be better to to be able to to have those other functions of the note stored in other parts of the EHR mm-hmm. uh, but right now our EHRs just aren't there yet I agree, Mike, and um, I, I also think that this was a very interesting paper that you wrote. Um, one of the things that 
I think we haven't quite touched on is there's the aspect of how do we make notes um, most useful? How do we make notes very accurate? How do we make sure that notes are um, valuable both in the setting of using them within the direct clinical environment where the patients are receiving care. So maybe I don't need to see all of the history during a progress note when I've already been taking care of the patient for a week. So I can collapse certain sections of the note um, versus someone in an outside hospital who maybe needs a little bit more context. But I think one of the big reasons that copy paste has become so prevalent is because of the fact that people actually spend massive amounts of their time writing notes. And mm -hmm. with the advent of the electronic medical record, the act of writing notes has actually probably taken up now the bulk of clinicians and nurses even time in clinical care and pajama time and all these other um, times when people are spending writing their clinical documentation and copy paste has become a crutch that we use to sort of, I think, help us get through that um, a little bit faster. And I wondered if you have any thoughts kind of going forward about what can we do about this problem of both needing comprehensive co documentation, but also really not having the time to rewrite it every single time. There's, I mean, I would say there's two aspects to it, right? Like on the front end for the, for, for, for getting through our day and for, for what, for meeting what we feel is a need for complete documentation, copy and paste does help us figure that out. Uh, on the other, on the other hand, I think part of the reason, you know, for example, as a hospitalist, when I admit a patient, part of the reason it's so hard for me to, it takes so long for me to admit a patient is because it's kind of hard for me sometimes to figure out what's going on with the patient, right? Like I see all these, I see a lot of copy text from different providers, and it's really hard for me to understand the the clinical course of what's of what's going on. Um, and I would actually say that that's probably the the thing that we can probably evolve the most, or you know, we we could work on the most with EHRs is to how do you capture a clinical course? Because I think really focusing on that uh, in our documentation will allow us to make it both more concise, more relevant, and just help us better understand what's going on with the patient. Do you guys have to ever write manual notes like in med school or in, during residency? Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, still, I totally had to write them in residency. So, I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I think like, you know, chart lore was still an issue back then, right? Yeah. Um, and it's still kind of, I remember, I don't remember it being pleasant writing notes. I guess it was faster to do progress notes because, you know, you could just squeeze them out really quickly. But like a con like a HMP still took like some time. Um, so I mean, I, and I don't know like whether head to head it's longer um, to do an HMP on the current EHRs or with copy paste or if it's it's the same. The other thing that I think has kind of helped me with um, the copy paste and really trying to get figure out like where the provenance of of some of this text comes from is the search feature, particularly on Epic. So I'll use that a lot um, to figure out, like, when did this drug first come into play or, you know, who first mentioned da 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 And that's been, very, that's been very helpful for me. I think if you had a timeline feature, that would be a good benefit. The non-original text in your study, was that uh, things like 
your personal smart phrases and uh was that included as part of the non-original text or no so anything that was from a template was included in the imported category okay so anything that was copied was was just copied anything that's like directly entered by you manually was manual and then anything that was imported was was either a lab or a personal something brought in from like a dot phrase or a template uh and then like an imported thing if you edited it uh that would go you know part that would become manual okay all right Mike, do you think that um, considering that your article was focused on um, internal medicine hospitalists mm-hmm. um, and inpatient services on internal medicine, do you have any insight about whether your findings are applicable more generally to either other inpatient situations or to the outpatient world? Uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a sense. I mean, my guess would be the one trend I have seen even within the internal medicine services is patients who tend to be there a long time, perhaps to the surprise of nobody, uh, tend to have higher proportions of copied notes the further into their hospitalization. Um, so I imagine specialties that have longer staying patients uh, will tend to have more copied notes. Um, so that's about the only insight I have so far. Is your opinion that we should uh, you know, decrease the amount of copying features I think copy and paste is valuable in in helping you helping both remind you and seed your your current clinical thought. I mean, I certainly uh, rely on my copied note from the day before when I'm on inpatient service to to remind me of what I did yesterday and what the clinical decision making was yesterday because I don't always have that uh, available to me, you know, uh, at within memory. Um, so I I think. I think it might improve the documentation per se to make it easier to figure out what happened day to day, but I think it would it might slow it would slow us down as far as being able to to come up with the actual plan. Um, I think you know I've mentioned to some of you guys I, I I feel like the goal would be to to somehow put clinical decision making documentation uh, sorry clinical decision support clinical decision uh, documentation and billing. Uh, all at the point of decision making, um, and so make it so develop interfaces so that we can all do those things at the same time. Uh, so I think it's it's sort of balancing, you know, how do you how do you document um, while still being able to ha- to to have access to the most recent clinical course that's relevant to the decision you're making. It's an interesting thought process to think about how much documentation you would really need on top of just organizing like say the orders for a day in a certain way right like if i just looked at the orders and they were organized say by problem and i saw that for the patient's sepsis problem the antibiotics were narrowed a lab result came back uh or a speciation came back from the culture um and uh, and some fluids were ordered i do i really need additional text to explain to me what happened like i can pretty much understand what was done by that clinician that day for that problem right and and so mike at ucsf um you know after this after you know you showed everyone your results was there any talk of any change uh you know that was that could be implemented um not yet we haven't we haven't talked about changing behavior quite yet we we have had projects in the past that have focused on what should be should belong in the note um and i so i think the, to some extent the organization has already spent effort on that. Uh, the one thing, the one trend that was interesting, though, that we initially saw um, 
was that once the feature was turned on, the copy rates over the, from January to June, it wasn't a huge drop, but it, we, you could see that the, the copy percentage went down and the manually ent manual entry went up. Um, it really it disrupted in July, I think, when the new interns came in. Um, but you can almost... Why do you, it, why do you think mm -hmm. that is, though, Mike? I mean, did they know that uh, there was this new feature? So there's 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 basically a, a a small there's a small set of checks check boxes over your note that says uh, I th I think it's it's copy it says copied manual or I think template and so you can you you like anybody in the chart for any given note can see even for their own notes how much of their note is copied manually or or manually entered so I, I kind of wonder if if there's a little bit of shame or embarrassment that came with that and so people made an effort to then do more manual entry. To me, I think that the burden should be taken dramatically shifted away from documentation. The documentation should be generated by our activities. And um, re really, we should be focusing only on documenting what portion of uh, our activities are, are sort of represented by our clinical decision making and our thought processes. And then the rest of the time, we should be shifting back towards spending time actually with our patients or having meaningful discussions with other providers about coordinating the care for our patients. If the EHR not only captured the active decisions you made, but also the negative decisions you made, like that probably that that would go most of the way to help to, to to I think documenting what it was I was thinking during during the day. So for example, if a chest if if instead of writing out like I saw a patient with chest pain, I thought about I thought about ACS, I thought about PE, their well score is zero. I uh, I I didn't order a CTPE. Uh, in, instead, you instead you just like could put it in order like no PE, well score zero, low risk. Like, I think then just even from looking at the orders, you could figure out what someone was thinking, right? And I think that's, I mean, it's definitely very interesting and a long way off, but I think in showing everybody what is making up our notes now, uh, you know, is a push for change. And so I think yeah. your article is really important. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. I mean, this is awesome. And it's like awesome to hear yeah, from pretty... one of our fellows, you know, one of our co-fellows that, uh, you know, has made it big and... Uh, you know, is obviously sharing some some important stuff. So thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Do you mind uh, staying out around for uh, pro tips? Uh, sure. All right. Well, awesome. Um, so now's part of the show where we share, you know, our pro tips for the week. I know, uh, Chancy, you haven't been around uh, for a while, so hopefully you've built up this like large, you know, accumulation of pro tips to to share. <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, I've been busy with a baby, so I think. <laughs> Uh, actually, there was one. There, so there was a couple things I wanted to discuss you with, with you guys. Um, one, we had this really great uh, birth plan app. So, uh, I think a lot of times in meetings, it's really it can be sort of distracting when you have like a sea of laptops. And I still prefer to write. I know I'm an informatics fellow, but I still like to write things out. And so I got a LiveScribe pen, which is really cool. And it's a it's a Bluetooth pen that it um, there's dots in the special paper that it will write it and then we'll just like upload that into your phone or into EndNote. So you can basically just take notes by writing and then they'll automatically transfer to your phone and so on. And then there's one called 
bamboo where you can just print out the little dot matrix paper and it will tell where it is on the paper and so it can just completely mimic it. So if you want to draw or if you want to write or whatever, it will do it. And then like uh, you can reorder your notes when you do it. And then the pen also records audio as well. So it's really cool. It's for Luddites that still like to write but want to, ha- want to have everything electronic. Uh, sweet, Chancy. And I'm going to go next because mine's kind of similar to yours. I mean, and just like Mark, I like to buy uh, – new things and but unlike mark i like to buy apple products um and so <laughs> i did get the the <laughs> i know the newer um uh ipad pro the 10.5 inch and and with the pencil and like the pencil you know similar to chancy it's been nice to be in a meeting and like and be able to write and i know i'm not gonna like lose the paper um, because there isn't paper and and it's instantaneous like in college i had some sort of like hp laptop that you could write on but it was very there was like quite the the delay. Um, but I can use, you know, either just the notes app or I really love like Microsoft OneNote and you can type and you can, you know, highlight things. Um, and it all works really well. And OneNote syncs across, you know, any device really easily. So I've been, you know, really enjoying that and like, you know, and it, and it's kind of even nice to like, if I have like a spreadsheet of data and then you can like just mark it up with Excel and the, and the, the Apple pencil and the Microsoft products work really nicely with it, which is almost kind of surprising. And Mike, tell us what what's your pro tip? My pro tip is actually I'm gonna again I blame Mark for this. Um, so I I got myself a Chromebook Plus basically to use as a lightweight um, Microsoft OneNote inking inking device. Um, as soon as I bought it, um, I real I was I read things that basically said that Microsoft has disabled installing Microsoft Office on any Android device that's greater than 10 inches. So that really made me mad. Um, so I was really angry at Mark for a little bit. Um, and then and then I. <laughs> I do have a Chromebook, um, but then but then I read blogs that allowed me to sideload Android. So now that I have sideloaded everything on that I want to, um, as long as it works great. I mean, it's it's a super lightweight device. It's pretty cheap, so it's sort of my beater. Um, and the only downside to really, it's really it's it's effectively replaced my my Spectre X360 um, as almost my primary driver, except uh, it freezes every now and then. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, as long as I don't hit spacebar when I turn on the computer, which basically resets the whole computer out of developer mode, I'll, I'll be gold. <laughs> and, uh, Ben, do you have anything? For those of you who are, um, who are going to be married to your sort of, uh, partially Pager? functional laptops, Chromebooks, tab, tablets, Apple, um, iPad Pros and what so what have you. Um, I used to spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to um, get into my home computer uh, from afar and sit in meetings and organize my files or use something that I don't have on my uh, on my phone or on my lap on my laptop or on my tablet. And um, and I used to spend a lot of time dealing with like configuring port forwarding on my router to make sure that I could get to the port for the remote desktop connection on my computer at home. And um, and there used to be a product called Log Me In that was free, um, but that went away. And um, and actually, since we were talking about Google, Google stepped up and, um, and I now basically use this product on every device that I have, um, but it's called Google Remote Desktop. And, or Google Chrome Remote Desktop, and you can essentially install it on your Windows PC, on your Mac, 
and access your computer from Android, from Windows, from Mac, from um, from iOS, from anywhere. And it's gotten to be quite good. So like I have a couple of computers that I leave at home. I can get to them from any device and um, and it's really useful. And uh, Mark, you know, it's been real. And thank you for <laughs> thank you for you know starting this uh, podcast with us. Uh, you were on like the fake first episode, and uh, you know shared lots of knowledge and wisdom. And and you know you're going you know to an office somewhere that with really important people uh, now, and and won't be around anymore. But um, wait, so Mark's not gonna be in the podcast because he got exiled? Wow. I mean, he's graduating. Am I right? off the island? No, I think you're. Wait, wait, with right. a helicopter. You went with a helicopter. <laughs> we Logan'd run this thing. He aged out of the program. And he... <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Wow. Like, oh, my gosh. I didn't realize this was like a wheels up kind of th- situation. Well, I mean, so... I'm going to play vitamin C, you know, like the graduation song as we go out today. <laughs> um, but what, what's your pro tip? Your very last pro tip, Mark. Um, so I'm just going to talk, you know, I I started a pro tip about, uh, Chromebooks and I'm going to end with my, uh, new computer, which I'm using for rounding called the GPD pocket. And also actually the other pro tip for all the fellows on the Slack is you should all join the channel device geeks because it's basically just me and Mike. (laughs) (laughs) posting things from the verge no so actually you know what my my real my my real pro tip is watch out for china because i think uh you know i've been messing around with a lot of a lot of chinese tech recently and it's getting really good really quickly um and you know i've said this i think uh, on device geeks a couple times but i stand by it but I, i really think that um you know the trajectory of what's going on with like uh, Shenzhen and, and like the products coming coming from China, it's like where Korea, South Korea was like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, so, so Mark, you think so? It'll be about seven years before uh, Chinese phones blow up, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, and that's about it. They're gonna what, what GPD is gonna make the GPD Pocket Note Plus, and it's gonna explode. And that's uh, and both uh, literally and figuratively. Yeah, it's gonna be very expensive. Very nice. It's ridiculous. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, you know, thank you, uh, Ben and Chancy and Mark and then Mike for joining us. Um, it's it's been great. This has been Go Live, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Clinical Informatics Fellows. Uh, remember that you can follow us on Twitter at uh, ACI Fellows, and uh, you can email us, I think, as well at ACI Fellows at Gmail uh, dot com. And uh, you know. Let us know if you have any questions, and uh, thanks for listening. And thanks for joining me today, guys. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Chase.